Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of the prophet Jeremiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. We are in Jeremiah 10 tonight, so turn there. When I am studying to present any portion of the Bible, in this case, a chapter of the book of Jeremiah, I always look for the center of it, or what is the primary theme, what is the central idea. And I usually start by presenting that idea because it helps create familiarity with the language that we are about to read. Jeremiah 10 The central theme is, you're stupid. That that is the central theme. I really can't help it. And in fact, sometimes people get upset with me and send me emails in all capital letters for the fact that I will occasionally call people generally human beings. I will say they're stupid. Verse 14, every man is stupid. Devoid of knowledge, says the NASB. Ba'ar is the Hebrew word. It means unthinking, undiscerning. Okay, so in what context can God say that all men and every man is unthinking and undiscerning? Well, the beginning of this chapter is God mocking people for their gods. I mean, after all, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God who made heaven and earth, has left himself ample evidence of his existence in the creation itself. We were talking a little bit about it last night at men's group, that the deeper we look into the cellular level of how things are created, the more astounding it becomes. And human beings haven't begun to figure out the vastness of what we call outer space. So whether you're looking at the micro or whether you're looking at the macro, there are things that are just so far beyond human comprehension, and those things all have the fingerprint of God, the maker. There is intelligence to the way that the universe and the creation all work. And that intelligence is written into it on purpose by God. He is stamping his seal on everything he has made, and yet... Despite the history of God with Israel collectively, despite the fact that he took them out of Egypt, despite the fact that he took them to the Red Sea, fed them with manna, despite the fact that he has sent them prophets, despite the fact that he has given them his commandments, he has revealed himself to them in a way that he has revealed himself to no other nation, despite the fact that he has done all that, they decided to worship and sacrifice to a rock. That's stupid. And so you can see why God would say, I'm right here. I've cared for you. I can't help myself anymore. 
I have to yet again refine you. I have to yet again judge you and punish you. I have to discipline you because I am the God who created everything and you are giving the worship that rightly belongs to me. You're giving it to stones and trees and carvings of your own hands and there's just no real excuse for that. And so God is going to mock the gods that human beings create. And this is something that he does several times through his prophets. In fact, we're also going to look at Isaiah saying the very same thing a couple hundred years before Jeremiah. Isaiah talking to the northern tribes or Jeremiah to the southern tribes, although Jeremiah is going to talk to all 12 tribes collectively, all of Israel and holding them guilty. But the prophets keep saying this. You would think at some point after God at Mount Sinai said, don't make any graven images. That's one of the big 10. He puts that out there right at the beginning. You'll have no other gods before me. Don't take my name in vain. Don't make images and bow down to them. And then that's exactly what Israel does. And so he sends his prophets, and through his prophets, he continually mocks their gods. And the way that he mocks those gods is that he demonstrates their complete inability to do things like walk or talk or have any intelligence at all, and they're no help in a time of trouble. And yet, you worship them on par with me, the maker of heaven and earth. So you can see why God would say, you are unthinking, you are undiscerning. That word even means you're like brute beasts. You're just operating day by day on what satisfies your flesh. Give me something to eat. Give me somewhere to sleep. Don't make me think. And there's a whole lot of that going on in the world still today. The same God still has the same creation with his same fingerprints on it, and yet people just go about their everyday lives without ever giving any thought to the fact that they rightly should be worshiping the God who has fed them and given them breath and created everything. So God's perspective is really given to us here in chapter 10, and he does conclude, every man is stupid. Amen. And we got a hearty amen from that side of the room. Chapter 10, verse 1. Hear the word which the Lord Yahweh speaks to you, O house of Israel. So collectively he's talking to all 12 tribes. Even though the northern tribes have gone off into the Assyrian captivity, they went into that captivity because they are guilty of this exact thing. And you would think that Judah, the southern kingdom, after seeing the way that God punished the northern kingdom, you would think that the southern kingdom would have wised up and said, God is really serious about this whole no other gods thing. But instead, they continued worshiping these foreign gods, the gods of other nations. And so naturally, God says, well, then I have to refine you. I have to correct you. Thus says Yahweh, do not learn the way of the heathen nations. He told them that back in the law. When he first brought them into the land of Canaan, one of the things he told them was, don't learn. Don't even intermarry. Don't pay attention to the gods that these other people have. 
Do not be terrified by the signs of the heaven. So much of heathen worship then and now is based on celestial events. When people see a comet or a shooting star or you know, the sun coming up or the moon in its rotation, they end up worshiping the creation rather than the creator. And if they see things like rains or tornadoes or famines and stuff, they become afraid of these things that are coming from the heavens. And so God says, don't be tempted to go worship those things as if they are the cause. In a moment, God's going to say, I'm the one in charge of all that stuff. I'm the one who causes all that stuff. So rather than being afraid of them, be afraid of me. Instead of worshiping them, worship me. Instead of paying attention to them, pay attention to me. Do not be terrified by the signs of the heavens. Although the nations, the very ones I've told you not to study, don't learn the way of the nations, the nations are terrified by them. That's why they worship the way they do. For the customs of those peoples are delusional. These people suffer from a delusion. Because it is wood cut from the forest. It is the work of the hands of a craftsman with a cutting tool. It's just something that people have made. It's something people have formed. They cut down a tree. They whittle on it for a little while. They give it some likeness of some creature or some bird or some crawling thing or even a man. By the way, if you think that is ancient stuff, what is a totem pole? A totem pole is exactly that, carvings of different animals and eagles that then they would worship. And so this is still very common, very popular today. People today buy all kinds of talismans that they hang around their neck or hang in their houses and think that that is going to bring them the blessing of God or some kind of good luck because they are worshiping things that are created by other people. It's just wood cut from the forest, the work of the hands of a craftsman with a cutting tool, and then they decorate it with silver and gold, and they fasten it with nails and with hammers so that it won't fall down. The word in the NASB is totter. It won't tip over because you've put it on a stand and you've nailed it there. It has no ability to stand on its own. It has no ability to stand upright. You decorate it. You put silver and gold on it like it's so very valuable. I believe I have mentioned this at some point in the past, but you know, as you go down old Nashville Highway here toward Murfreesboro, there is the Buddhist temple up on the left-hand side. And every winter, that big statue of four-headed Buddha out front of the temple, every winter, they put scarves and clothing on it. It's a chunk of metal but they make sure to keep it warm during the winter and put beautiful knitted scarves on it. It's remarkable. So again, before you say, well, that's old Israel that did that, people are still doing it to this very day. They're creating their images. They deck it with gold, in their case, gold paint, and then they treat it like it's alive, but it doesn't move. It's nailed there. It's a permanent fixture. 
and then he compares it to a scarecrow that is in a cucumber field. They're nailed there. They're stuck there to scare the birds, but they can't actually do anything. If the birds do come down on your vegetables, they can't scare it away. It's just there to give the birds the impression someone's watching. But they're just empty scarecrows in a cucumber field. They cannot speak. One of the primary differences between all other gods and idols, all creations of human beings, and Yahweh is that he communicates. He actually tells us who he is, what he's like, what he thinks. He actually prophesies the future, and he explains history and why it happened. There's no chunk of wood. There's no rock coated with gold that can do that. And God knows that. And so he's pointing out the obvious by saying they don't speak, and they have to be carried around because they cannot walk. That's a great God right there, isn't it? <laughs> You're better than that God. You can speak, you can walk, you can think, which means you have more capacity than the thing you're worshiping. That chunk of metal up on old Nashville Highway has never done anything for anyone, but they hold festivals to it. So they must be carried, and they cannot speak, and they cannot walk. Therefore, the word is fear. Do not fear them. It means do not do homage to them. Do not reverence them. For they can't do any harm and they can't do any good. So not only are they physically incapable, they're morally incapable. They can't do anything to benefit you and they can't do anything to hurt you. So why are you fearing them? Why are you paying attention to them? Turn over to Isaiah 40 for just a moment. Keep your finger there and in uh, Jeremiah 10, and we'll be right back. Turn over to Isaiah 40. I'm going to start reading at verse 13, and we'll read until uh, I just decide to quit reading. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? Or as his counselor, who has ever informed him? God is unique, God is individual, God knows everything. Nobody has ever directed the Spirit of God. Nobody ever told him anything that he went, oh, thank you, I didn't know that. The phrase I've heard so many preachers use through the years is, has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurred to God? With whom did he consult? And who gave him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice or taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? Behold, the nations, all those people, all the Gentiles who God said, don't interact with them, don't learn their ways. They are like a drop in the bucket and they are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. And behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust, even the forests of Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for burnt offerings. All the nations are as nothing before him, and they are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. 
To whom, then, will you liken that God? Okay, here's the same line of questioning. Are you going to make yourself an idol? Are you going to bow down and worship it? Are you going to put it on parallel with the God who made everything? To whom will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? As for the idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering of gold and silver, he selects a tree that does not rot, some kind of evergreen. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. It will not fall over. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth that it is he, it is Yahweh, who sits above the vault of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers? It is he who stretches the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted. Scarcely have they been sown. Scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth. But he merely blows on them, and they wither. And the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me, that I should be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these stars, the one who leads forth their host in number. He calls them by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, and not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob? Why do you assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? And the justice do me escapes the notice of my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired? His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary. And to him who lacks might, he increases their power. And though youths grow weary and tired, And vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be tired. They will walk and not become weary. So this is God defending his singularity, his uniqueness. I'm the one who created everything, and yet you create idols. Why would you compare me to a stone or a chunk of wood, something that you have to nail down so that it doesn't fall over? I am the great one. I am the mighty one. And people are nothing to me. They are dust. I blow on them, and they're gone. And even strong men. Even young men get old, get tired, and the God who is everlasting never wears out. So, from that perspective, you can see why God, we're back in Jeremiah 10 now, you can see why God would say, the way you're acting and the way that you are equating me 
with pieces of wood and pieces of stone is just unthinking. You're no different than a beast of burden, a brute beast. You are completely un... Oh, okay, you're stupid. And you can see why you'd say that. So we're back in Jeremiah 10, starting in verse 6. The declaration that God is unlike human beings, he is great, and his name is full of power and might. Verse 6, there is none like thee, O Lord, all the idols who people try to compare to God. There's none like you. You are great, and great is thy name in might, in power, Who would not fear thee, O king of the nations? Here he is again, being the king, the ruler over all nations, not just Israel and Judah. He can do what he wants with what's his. He can blow and make the nations disappear. And so the nations should be worshiping him. They should be fearing him. Who would not reverence you, O king of the nations? Indeed, it is your due. For among all the wise men of all the nations and in all their kingdoms, there's none like you. But they are altogether stupid and foolish. And in their discipline of delusion, their idol is wood. I love the phrase, in their discipline of delusion. It's a great turn of a phrase. It means they're deluded on purpose, actively, constantly. It is a regular practice discipline for them to be deluded into thinking that a chunk of wood is on par with the God who has all the power, all the might, the creator of everything. And consequently, God concludes they are stupid and they are foolish. Verse 9. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Euphaz, the work of a craftsman and of the hands of a goldsmith. Violet and purple are their clothing, and they are all the work of skilled men. Okay, so all those idols that people are clothing, decking in royal colors, decking in purple, putting gold on them, putting precious silver on them, and yet they're just the work of human beings. It's craftsmen that created them. They did not exist prior to being formed by human beings, and they're going to corrupt and rust and be gone just like everything else on planet Earth. But the Lord, Yahweh, says verse 10, is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Verse 11 then is really intriguing to me because God says to Jeremiah, thus you shall say to them, The gods that did not make the heavens and the earth. By the way, one of the identifiers that Yahweh uses all the way through the Bible to identify him as distinct from every other supposed God is he calls himself repeatedly the God who made heaven and earth. I'm the God who made heaven and earth. 
So then he says, those gods that you worship, they didn't make heaven and earth. I did that. The gods that did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. Now, the reason that statement is so interesting to me is the entire book of Jeremiah is written in Hebrew. That verse, that one verse from the whole book of Jeremiah, that verse is in Aramaic. Why? Well, the common thinking, the commentators that I've read and agree with say that probably it's because that statement of the complete inability of these foreign gods, the ones who did not make heaven and earth, and the fact that they're all going to perish, those are the gods that the nations were following. And at the time, Aramaic was sort of the language of the realm, especially among tradesmen and especially among people who went about trading since they had to have some kind of common language in order to accomplish their work. They spoke Aramaic. And so God, at that moment, has Jeremiah make an Aramaic phrase so that even the nations can't say, you didn't tell us. Even the nations have to admit, you told us in our own language, in our own tongue. You explained to us the foolishness of the gods that we worship. It's just really fascinating that suddenly God would speak Aramaic. Verse 12. It is he, Yahweh, who made the earth by his power, who established the world, notice this, by his wisdom. Why is that important now? Because he just said, you're stupid. And by comparison, he has all wisdom. His wisdom is demonstrated by the fact that he made the world. He made the heaven and the earth. And he didn't do it haphazardly. He did it with an intelligent creativity that still baffles human beings. And he made the earth by his own power. He established the world by his wisdom. And it was by his understanding that he has stretched out the heavens. So earlier when he said, don't be afraid of those signs from the heavens. Don't be afraid of the cosmic things you might see going on. He says, I'm the one that made the heavens. I'm in charge of what's going on in nature, in the heavens, on the earth. I made all this. I did it intelligently. I did it by my wisdom and my own understanding of my own plan, which you do not comprehend. By his understanding, he has stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens. He's talking about the rainstorms and the, the natural disasters that might happen that caused people to go run to their gods that are not gods, that they would go and worship. Like in Egypt, I mean, my goodness, they had gods for everything. They had gods of bugs, and they had the sun god and the moon god. They had the god of the Nile. They, just, they had a whole pantheon of gods depending on what the particular dilemma was. And so God says, I'm the one who brings those dilemmas. I'm the one who created all this, and I did it in my own understanding and wisdom. So don't be afraid of it. I'm in charge of it. I'm the one who causes the clouds to ascend from the end of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. 
That's one of the things that people would have been afraid of. These signs from the heavens, lightning coming down, thunderstorms. He says, I'm in charge of that. He's the one who brings the wind from his storehouses. Storehouses were a very important part of life in the Middle East. You had a harvest season, but then you had to store up that grain for the period during the winter when you couldn't grow food. So it was really important to have strategically placed storehouses. I find it interesting that God would say, I put the wind, which none of us control. Can you run outside and grab yourself a hand of wind? No, of course not. But God says, I actually contain the wind in my storehouses. I take it out when I'm ready for it. When it gets really bad, windy, tornadoes, whatever happens, that's me bringing the wind out, bringing the rain out, bringing the lightning out. I'm the one who causes these natural disasters, so-called, that you're so afraid of that you would go worship something else other than me. Verse 14, he says it again. Every man is stupid and devoid of knowledge. So he does what he does by his wisdom, by his understanding. But all human beings are devoid of that kind of understanding and knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his molten images are deceitful. And there is no breath in them. A minute ago, he said they can't walk, they can't talk, they can't help, they can't do bad, they can't do good. Now he points out they're not alive. That's what they're, It's a rock. It can't do anything for you. For his molten images are deceitful, and there is no breath in them. They are worthless. They are a work of mockery. In the time of their punishment, they will perish. God is again contrasting himself as the everlasting. As we just read out of Isaiah, that even though human beings get old and decay, even young men get tired, he is the everlasting one. And that is what makes him distinctly different from all the stuff that you could ever create, anything you could carve, anything you could cut down, anything you could dress in purple, anything you're in control of is going to perish the same way you are. And yet God is everlasting. And that makes him distinctly different, and that's why he deserves worship. And your creations don't. They are worthless. They are a work of mockery. In the time of their punishment, they will perish. The portion of Jacob, he now says, is not like these. I expect Jacob, I expect Israel to know me. I'm, I revealed myself to Jacob. I gave him the law. I gave him my prophets. I gave him my oracles. I have revealed myself to him. So even though the nations, even though the Gentiles, even though they are completely deluded with their idols, that's not how Jacob is supposed to be. The portion of Jacob is not like these. For the maker of all is he, is God, is Yahweh, And Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. I'm your God. You're my people. You don't get away with being stupid. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to instruct you. I'm going to make you realize who I am. How is he going to do that? 
He says, the maker of all is Yahweh, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance, and the Lord of hosts is his name. That word host right there is Tzaba. And what it literally means is he's the, the God of armies. He's in control of the hosts of heaven, the armies, the overwhelming hosts of heaven. He is Yahweh of hosts. And that's his name. He gave himself that name. He wants you to know he's in control of everyone and everything. So verse 17, you, Israel, you, Judah in particular, you are about to go into captivity. So pick up your bundle from the ground, all you who dwell under siege. In other words, pack your bags. You're getting ready to move. I'm about to take you into Babylon. Pick up your bundle from the ground, you who dwell under siege. For thus says Yahweh, behold, I am slinging out the inhabitants of the land at this time. And I will cause them distress so that that distress may be found. Here is God, the same God who Isaiah said, I create good, I create raw, I create Trouble, translated evil in the King James. I'm the one who brings calamity on people. The same way that the completely sovereign God brings blessings on people, he's the same one who brings calamity on people because he's in charge of everyone and everything. And here he says that he is going to cause them distress so that those distresses will be experienced. They are going to go through it. It's unavoidable because he has decided it. And then starting in verse 19, Jeremiah speaks in the first person. He says, me, but he seems to be speaking as a representative of Judah, of Jerusalem. Woe is me because of my injury. My wound is incurable. Does that language sound familiar? We saw it in Isaiah. We talked about it last night in men's group. We see it here again in Jeremiah. When God punishes his people, he likens it to an injury, to a wound that is unsolvable. There is no balm that can be put on it. There is no way to cure the injury that God puts on Israel. Only God can cure it. And he cured it, again, as we talked about last night, he cured it at Christ on the cross. By his stripes, we are healed. That was speaking particularly of the healing of the nations as a result of them being so sick. Woe is me, because of my injury, my wound is incurable. But I said, truly, this is a sickness and I must bear it. My tent is destroyed. He's now talking about the dwelling in Jerusalem, the dwelling of the people of God. That tent, that covering over them is destroyed. All my ropes are broken. My sons have gone from me, and they are no more. There is no one to stretch out my tent again or to set up my curtains For the shepherds have become, what's the next word? Stupid. Stupid. Because the shepherds have become stupid. 
Now, in this shepherd sheep analogy, he's talking about the leaders at Jerusalem. Even the leaders who should have known better, who should have guided the people of Jerusalem to worship Yahweh and him exclusively. The leaders who were supposed to teach them what God was like and what he expected from them, they themselves have strayed. And so he says, the people are stupid because the leaders are stupid. The shepherds have become stupid. Have I said the word stupid enough tonight? You can see God's perspective on human beings. For the shepherds have become stupid, and they have not sought Yahweh. Therefore, they have not prospered, and all their flock is scattered. All Jerusalem is going to be scattered because they did not properly shepherd the people. The sound of a report, behold, it comes. A great commotion out of the land of the north. Repeatedly, Jeremiah has made that geographic reference that when the armies of Babylon come down on Jerusalem, they're going to come down from the north. And what are they going to do? They're going to make the cities of Judah a desolation and a haunt for jackals. I know, O Lord, that a man's way is not in himself, nor is it in man who walks to direct his own steps. Boy, there's a sovereign comment. It's also a very anti-free will comment. It's God, we don't know what we're doing. You have to direct us. You have to lead us. And it's not within us to decide our own way. Now, in this context, he's saying, we don't want to go into the captivity in Babylon. We don't want to go serve other people for the next 70 years. We don't want to be slaves in the future. We want to stay here in Jerusalem. We want to be blessed. We want to be well taken care of. We want to be in the land of milk and honey. And yet God says, you're going, pack your bags, get ready to go. There's nothing you can do about it. And that's why Jeremiah says, it's not up to us. The way that we're going to go and what's going to happen to us is clearly up to you. I know, O Lord, that a man's way is not in himself, nor is it in a man who walks to direct his steps. So again, Jeremiah, speaking first person on behalf of all of Judah, says, Correct me, O Lord. So he admits this is going to happen. There's no way out. It is a refining process. It is a correcting process. It is a realignment process. And so Jeremiah says, okay, do it. There's no way to avoid it. It's not up to us to decide it. You do what you're going to do. Correct me. But notice the way that Jeremiah places it. He says, correct me, O Yahweh, but do it in your justice and not with your anger. If you're going to put us through this, don't destroy us completely. If you pour out your wrath on us, no one's going to survive. 
So correct us in a way that is just. We know that you are completely correct, completely justified in doing this to us, given everything you have already accused us of and everything that we're already guilty of, that we've been chasing other gods and that we are ignoring you and your proper worship. Given all that, okay, we deserve what's coming. Just when you bring it, remember your justice. Remember your own word to us. Remember the covenants you've made with us. Remember the promises you've given to us and then treat us justly, but don't do it in your wrath lest you bring us to nothing. If God ever unleashes his anger on somebody, that guy cannot stand before the wrath of God. And God has a history of wiping out whole nations and whole people groups. And so the prayer is, okay, do what you're going to do, but do it through your justice. Do it through your fairness. Don't do it through your anger or else we're nothing. Pour out your wrath on the nations. They're the ones who started this who taught us these errant ways, who were chasing these other gods. They're the ones that taught us how to make idols. Pour out your wrath on the nations that don't know you. And pour your wrath out on the families that do not call your name. For they devoured Jacob. They have devoured him and consumed him and have laid waste to his habitation. Now, again, we're going to see the same thing that we've seen God do over and over again. Not only is he going to use foreign nations in order to punish and correct his people, but then he's going to turn around and punish the nations for the way that they punish his people because he just simply is that sovereign. He can use the Gentile, stone-worshipping, wood-worshipping, ignorant, stupid nations in order to punish his own people and then hold them guilty for the fact that they attacked his people. And that's why Paul would ask the question in the book of Romans, he says, who's ever resisted his will? Paul's argument is, how can he judge us? How can he find fault with us if we're all doing exactly what he wants us to do? And that's a good example of it. The Gentile nations are going to come down on Jerusalem the same way they came down on the northern tribes and the same way that God punished Assyria for the haughtiness with which they attacked the northern tribes. God is going to punish the Chaldeans and give them over to the Medo-Persians and then give them over to the Greeks and then wipe them out completely and say Babylon is now going to be a haunt for jackals forever and to this very day. That stands true because he is a God who can say in his complete righteousness and justice and sovereignty, he can say, you're going to do what I want you to do, and then I'm going to hold you responsible for the doing of it. That's a God you can't mess with because if he ever decides to unleash his wrath on you, you can't avoid it because human beings and their ways and their steps are not in their hands. So this has nothing to do with Calvin. 
This has to do with the sovereign God of the Bible who declares over and over again, I'm completely and utterly wise and understanding of all things, and you're stupid. And you're going to do exactly what I want you to do. And I'm going to punish you for the doing of it. So you ought to be really, really happy to know that that God, a God who can be like that, that we're nothing to him, we're insects to him, we're nothing, we're grasshoppers, that God made available his son so that you could be eternally saved, live eternally in his presence, which is an astounding grace from a God who's in control of everything who thinks that human beings are just too dumb to comprehend him. What astounding grace that he would save sinners like us. Especially when you see that that's his perspective of us. Pretty amazing stuff. It is. I hope I have left you tonight with a sense of awe Mm -hmm. over the God that we all have to deal with. listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.